Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, and thank you for joining me, Chris Epting here, and as usual, you meet, with, you meet Give me one hour a week and I'll give you some incredible moments from some incredible people. It's a jam-packed show today. I want to get right to it. I've got two special guests today. The NAM show was held here recently in Southern California. The NAM show is the National Association of Music Merchants. And it's basically tens of thousands of people that descend upon Anaheim, California. It's musicians and manufacturers and promoters. It's just an incredible show. It's a great chance to meet people. And I lined up two guests that I think you'll like. The first one is Michael Anthony, who you probably probably know from Van Halen, one of the founding members, bass player. He added all those great high harmonies. After that, we're going to talk to Neil Preston, the dean, one of the true deans of rock and roll photography. But uh, but Michael was at the PV booth. He's been playing through PV bass amps for a long time, and they were nice enough to set this up. What was really special is Michael's 95-year-old dad was right, right by us there, and we kind of uh, make him part of the conversation. And as well, Michael shares, uh, I think, some really cool inside Van Halen stuff. So without further do here are a couple of really special moments from michael anthony van halen chicken foot and now a band called the circle with sammy hagar i'm chris epting you're listening to the moment michael when you think about it what what is a moment or two in your life when things as a musician where, where your life took a turn that you look back on now and think you know what had it not been for that we may not be sitting here talking today well now now that you put it that way one thing that instantly comes to mind is uh when sammy hagar joined the band because uh, Dave Lee Roth had left. Warner Brothers wanted us to change the name of the band because they felt that it was such a strong identity with Dave. And uh, we were saying, hey, look, this is our career we're talking about. And uh, by some, as fate would have it, Eddie gets hooked up with Sammy through their mutual car mechanic and he comes walking in the studio and uh, I've still actually on uh, a cassette tape I still have some of the stuff that we jammed that first time and it's like you know you can either get together and you can play I don't know to me it's like playing blues in, t- in all 12 different keys and, and it's okay but then there's magic that happens and when Sammy stepped in and that, that first day we jammed it was like we knew instantly that that the band you know that we were going to Elevated. What about those cassettes? <laughs> You're sitting. You know what? I mean, I probably try to put one in that. that I probably so, disintegrate. So casually. I mean, have you ever played them back to, to get a sense of what you that what? magic was in the room? That 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 one cassette I haven't played in a long time. Dude, I mean, but uh, you gotta maybe you know in this digital age, it'd be very someone can take that tape and restore it or do something. But that's that's a special piece. Yeah, of Yeah, yeah. They were right like, there. I mean, right off the bat, I can think of uh, there was uh, a song that came out on. Uh, one of our first our albums with Sammy called Good Enough. That was one of the songs that we jammed. In fact, a lot of stuff that he kind of just sang off the top of his head, there were lines that actually were used in that song. And I mean, it's, it, was, it was crazy. What's the moment in your early life, even before, you know, maybe leading up to Van Halen, when you look back, that kind of helped steer you this way? Okay, uh, probably the moment that we found out we were going to be signed by Warner Brothers. We were playing in Hollywood. Let's see if I can get the, if I can get this correct. We were, we were playing in Hollywood at a uh, 
a place called the Starwood, and it was a club that you know everyone you know that we played quite a bit. And uh, uh, eventually, the the owners of the club said, "Well, we can only afford to uh, pay uh, recording acts that that play here." And so we played a couple more times because we weren't making any money. And the the last time we were we played there, we uh, uh, Mo Austin, who was chairman of the board of Warner Brothers, and Ted Templin, who would produce our first number of records, came to the show and uh, wanted to sign us. And uh, it was just like a moment. It was it was surrealistic. You know, it was, it was surreal. One more. You know, your dad is sitting here. He's going he's going to turn ninety five. Mm-hmm. When? Yeah, uh, on February 9th my wedding anniversary um, so what about one moment with your dad growing up what's something that, that he okay. might have taught you my or dad, showed you my dad was always I, my dad actually is a uh, is or was a musician he played trumpet he played trumpet in the big band era in fact when I was in fourth grade I, I started playing trumpet that was the first instrument that I played all the way up into college I played trumpet and as much as he wanted me to succeed in the music business, he knew how tough it was because he never really succeeded on a high level. He had another job. He was a very successful electrical engineer. But uh, in the back of his mind, he always wanted me to succeed, so he would help me out with equipment and stuff like that. And I, I always remember the bands that I'd be playing in would be playing in the in our garage rehearsing, and one of our neighbors, our neighbor would come come next door and be going, "Hey, would you get shut that?" crap down blah blah and my dad would be out there yelling right back at him saying hey you know blow it out your ass you know and he and he actually and he, he, always, he, had he, he always had my back and he's here today with you and he's and he's here today he's just you know he's my uh, my mom passed away some years back but my dad he's he's still uh, I mean he goes dancing four nights a week comes out he comes out to our shows and uh, and rocks out like a one last thing in terms of the moment. I live in Huntington Beach. There was a place called the Golden Bear. Okay. And and there's a photo that a friend of mine used to work there took of you guys, where you guys said to her, "Take a picture with us because we're going to be famous one day." Oh. <laughs> so that's a moment that was conveyed to me about you at the well, Golden, Bear, Golden Bear. We, we hit the big time when you know the Golden Bear. You remember you playing know. there on? Uh, yeah, v- v- vaguely. Yeah. Remember playing there? The last time we played Huntington Beach, though. Uh, was this past October, you and we had there. about fifteen thousand people there. <laughs> you were there with Sammy and crew, and that was a really successful yeah, it was show. A high tide uh, beach party, yeah. we were calling it. We're actually uh, doing uh, two days there this year. We have Fantastic. two days slated, and and, and we're going to make it bigger and and better. And with the whole premise of that thing is to get a couple some some name acts. You know, I, 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 I can't mention anybody we're talking to. We're talking to some, you know, some great acts. So you're coming back. To do this. Yeah, we're coming back. And then also have some local acts and, you know, local food. You know, to make it like a, a local thing, too. Sure. Well, awesome, man. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Next up after this commercial break, there's the famed rock and roll photographer named Neil Preston. I'm Chris Epting. You're listening to The Moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Hey there, I'm Chris Epting. You're listening to The Moment. As I mentioned at the top of the show, while I was at the NAMM show in Anaheim recently, I sat down and had a really deep discussion with the great rock and roll photographer, Neil Preston. This is a guy who started out in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s, before moving to California, where he went on to then start this career. I mean, this is the guy who, as he'll describe in detail, was Led Zeppelin's only private touring photographer. He's got some great stories there, including one about Jimmy Page's uh, passport photo, which is really cool. So going to get to that right now. Again, Neil Preston talking about some moments in his life. This is Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me here on The Moment. Neil, for a lot of us that grew up, uh, especially in the 1970s, we would go to a certain concert and that would be a moment for us. You know, there are certain shows we remind ourselves of. Um, in a pre-digital sure. age, it was images like yours that would make that concert real for us. I remember specifically, I didn't see the shows in L.A., but as my first show ever was a Stone show at the Garden in 1975. When I saw your images right. from the forum of that tour, they were definitive. They really captured what I saw and felt in New York a few weeks wow. earlier. Wow. Do you think, what, wow. what, what's a moment for you starting out where you think about, okay, on either side of this, things could have gone a different way? Well, uh, it's not the easiest question in the world to answer, but um, I, I've had, um, well, there, there's definitely a couple of things that happened to me early on, even before I, I, I was, uh, started working that that were the kind of cross of the uh, you know the fork in the road moments. Um, the the main one, the, the one beyond all others, definitely had to be the night I sat down and saw a band called the Beatles on a show called the Ed Sullivan Show. I've heard of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that that definitely, as I as I wrote my book, it was the nuclear bomb delivered directly into my cortex by John Lennon mm -hmm. and there's no way and you, you know uh, you'll if you ever talk to other people my age or close to my age they will tell you the same thing yeah it was uh, it was an earth-shaking earth-shattering mega moment of, of, of nuclear uh, proportions and and my you know my life before that was all about Literally, the day before that, I was, what, 12, or I was just about to be 12 years old. And before that, it was all about the New York, I grew up in New York, it was all about the New York Yankees, did Mickey Mantle hit any home runs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Regular, you know, 11, 12-year-old sure. kid stuff. Sure. The day after, the day after, it became all about, Rock and roll, British invasion, all those bands, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, overnight. Wow. Ab absolutely, specifically overnight. And, um, you know, there's no way to describe the impact other than it was all encompassing and it was overnight. Yeah. So, um, that, 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 I was going to say, let me just finish. Sure. That was, I'd always been, um, I'd always been into music of all kinds. I mean, my dad was a Broadway stage manager, and, right. and uh, for me, for big, big musicals, he was a very important guy in the New York theater business. And uh, and he t 
turned me on to classical music and used to take me to Lincoln Center, see Leonard Bernstein conduct. And, you know, and I, I could I could almost tell you the difference between Haydn and, and Handel and Bach and, and this one, that one. I learned about light opera, Gilbert and Sullivan, and, mm-hmm. and certainly pop music. You know, my, my parents' pop music, you know, Sinatra, Tony Bennett. My mom's favorite in the world was Tony Bennett. She used to swoon <laughs> if you'd mention his name. And so, you know, I was no stranger to music and was in the choir and took major music in school, but, but and I had no... But I never used to listen to the radio at those times. I couldn't tell you what was on the radio. I remember my sister read a thing for Elvis Presley. She was older than me. So uh, that the rock and roll just hitting me over the head was was a big, big, big fucking deal. Neil, when that and, happened, uh, did it erase? Did you stop being into things like the Yankees and you know being a big, typical baseball kid in the Bronx or whatever? Or did you balance the two? It was actually Queens. Um, well, no, I mean, you, you know, you don't drop everything. But when I was a kid, I had a, I had every hobby a kid could have: stamp collecting, coin collecting, building model airplanes. You know, I was I was a regular kid, uh-huh. and um, it just opened my eyes to this world of rock and roll. And you know, I mean, I was the same kid, but 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 it it had the biggest impact on me. Okay. Um, around that time, I it must have been uh, right after because it would make sense. But I remember maybe I was thirteen or fourteen, but it was probably thirteen. I, I my parents gave me my first guitar as a Christmas present. Uh-huh. We were we were Jewish, but we never celebrated Hanukkah. You know, I'm, right. I like to call myself the world's worst Jew. <laughs> but um, and um, you don't have to print uh, that. But um, you, you know uh. It was that you know I was immersed in, in the rock and roll world, and and at this around the same time as the Beatles, maybe within that year, I was given my first camera by my then brother-in-law, and the combination of all that stuff was intoxicate more than intoxicating. It just it changed my life, and photography became my big hobby. Rock and roll was my love. Photography was my hobby, and and a love of mine. And the, those two things morphed into one kind of mega hobby um, when I started taking my camera to rock and roll concerts. The the thing that really at that point was absolutely the fork in the, in the road because it was a fluke was that uh, a couple of buddies of mine used to bring our cameras to rock shows. Uh, there was a concert series at the Singer Bowl. And, and the, at, the Singer Bowl was uh, a, a, a venue that had been on the site of the New York World's Fair in right. 1964, 65, and then became a tennis stadium. But there was a concert series there. And I can't remember the first one I went to. I, I Sorry, but I can't remember... But uh, I'd gone to one and taken some pictures from the audience or whatever. And, and me and my buddies had also taken some pictures. And there was what we thought was a ticket office for the local concert, concert series right near our houses. So like two blocks away. And we figured, God, if we take them some prints of, of, from the sh- these shows, maybe we can get some free tickets. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Sure. And it turned out that uh, 
it was not a ticket office. It was the promoter's office. And um, this is a moment, Neil. Like, this is a moment. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. This is it. And so it turned out that the promoters, like the pictures, started giving us passes to get into their shows for free and to take photos. And that was, I mean, that was a fluke. It was an absolute fluke. And that really changed my life because now I'm backstage all the time and I started meeting people in the business and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? Time flies. And, you know, that happened and all of a sudden I'm sitting here talking to you. It literally goes that fast. But that was the, that was kind of the fluke moment because I, I the seeds had already been sown to say the least. Sure. But I had, I didn't know what I was going to do for a living. I mean, I was still in high school. I was a junior in high school and I started working when I was a junior and, um, uh, I was I was started getting published in little rock magazines here and there, and um, <clears throat> then I, I and I was still junior in high school. When I was a senior in high school, uh, we formed a little. Me and my buddies formed a little company, and and I I remember I had in, in my senior year I had two classes because I was like an accelerated student. I had two classes I had to attend every day. One was English, and one was major art. The irony of which is I can't draw. I still draw stick figures. Okay, <laughs> I'm in I'm in awe of anyone that can actually paint or draw, uh, even minimally, because I draw stick figures. And, and but I passed major art because my art teacher saw my photos and said, "Well, you obviously have some artistic talents. It's just not in terms of painting or drawing or sketching or anything like that." And. Um, uh, I used to go to school and then we'd get on a subway into Manhattan because I lived, grew up in Queens and um, used to flog our pictures at record companies and management offices and, you know, you'd start meeting people and it was a kind of a burgeoning industry at the time because there was no such thing as, well, I'll use the term I hate, rock photography. It makes me think of geology, but, mm-hmm. you know, rock and roll photography, music photography, that didn't exist. It was just photography. Right. And, right. and, you know, and I used to, my sensibilities were really about photojournalism. And, you know, I used to fantasize about being a life magazine photographer because those guys were the super studs of photojournalism. And, right. Right. You know, the whole romantic thing about globe trotting and having a couple of beat up cameras in a bag and be able to, you know, with some couple of, about t-shirts and fly here and fly there and that the thought of that happening was just you know that was that was a dream that i never never thought would would come to fruition um and uh it's funny we did a little um we did a little trailer like a four minute teaser when my book came out last year um and and the the teaser opens uh, with me driving a car and I'm, you know, the director's in the passenger seat and he's shooting me. And, and I said, you know, I used to fantasize about being a swing in London photographer. I mean, the movie Blow Up was another thing that kind of opened my eyes. And Blow Up, very famous movie that came out in 66. The Yardbirds. Was that, 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 right. That, uh, yeah, and the, but the, yes, that's correct. They, they did have a, like a 10-second cameo. But, uh, the, the the main character played by David Hemmings was yeah. a photographer pretty much based on David Bailey, who was right. the king of the swing in London photographer. 
so I so I say in this little trailer, you know, I was uh, I I would fantasize that I was a swinging London photographer, and I'd be, you know, my biggest my biggest problem would be figuring out what hot blonde model to take to dinner, and <laughs> and um, and then then the phone would ring, and and it would be Mick or Keith, there is someone saying, can you, you know, can you can you can you come down to the studio and shoot John and Paul and the boys and this kind of thing. And, and this was my fantasy uh, uh, by the time I was 17, 18. And, and I thought, you know, that's a club that I'd lo love to be in. Right. And, and as I said in the trailer, I said, it's bizarre because it kind of happened. Um, so there, there you are. That's, that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> Neil, when you're when you're starting to go into New York City, I imagine the venues are probably the Academy of Music, the Fillmore, places like that. Were there certain shows well, early right. that stood out to you as a photographer where you felt like you experienced something yeah, through the uh, lens? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, the venues were definitely the Fillmore. I used to shoot a lot at the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, uh, the Academy of Music, what, on 14th Street? Yeah, before um, it became the Palladium. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Uh, I must have shot there. I know I shot there many times when it was, a, uh, well, no, when it was the Academy of Music. Um, and uh, they used to have shows at Hunter College, I right. recall. I, I know I went out to some show at Stony Brook on the island. Um, I basically was going to shows that, that these promoters uh, promoted, other than, of course, the Fillmore. Sure. And... Um, I was I, I did photograph a Jimi Hendrix concert in Boston, and I, I, I used to say it was 1968, but it, you know my memory fails me. It could have been 1969, but um, the, the the one of the, the main shows I'm just pulling into a gas station. I got to wait for a guy no to move. But the the the, the show that that really just blew my mind and. Um, that I still count as probably the single best show I ever saw was at at a, a, a little club on West on 70th Street, West 70th and Broadway. Uh, it was a little. Uh, you'd have to go downstairs. It was a mafia club, and it was called Ungano's. Mm -hmm. U N G A N O apostrophe S. Sure. Run by these two brothers, Nikki and Arnie Ungano. Who who like uh, I'm not even going to fill up. I'm just going to get three or four yellows. So okay, we'll yeah, pause it right now. Hang on, I'm not, I'm not. All right, hang on one second. Okay, hang on. Get there. I'm just going to sit in the car and keep talking to you oh, because cool. my office is right across from Burbank Airport, and uh, I I'm convinced that the air traffic controllers have binoculars. And the, as soon as I'm, I yeah, the, the MC5 at Unganos was a was just you know, an insane concert, but you know what? Every show that I shot around that time was just another kind of affirmation that, that I loved what I was doing. I seemed to be good at what I was doing. And, and when it came time for me to graduate high school, which I did in 1970, I, um, I had applied to three different colleges, which you were allowed to do, and I applied to NYU because they had a good film school. I applied to Rochester Institute of Technology, which I know had a good photography uh, curriculum because they were in Rochester and were kind sure. of 
Cobble that is funded by Kodak and, um, and Philadelphia College of Art, uh, which had a great photography program. And I had a lot of friends in Philly and I was, uh, it was known as PCA, Philadelphia College of Art. And I was accepted to all three. And I, I went so far as to decide that I wanted to go to PCA and my mom and dad had even put a deposit down on my tuition. Um, and so that was, that would have been like June of 1970 or May or June of 19, you know, beginning of July, whatever. And, um, it just hit me one day. I don't want to go to college. Um, and because I was already a working photographer, I'd been published and things were definitely on the upswing. Um, and, uh, and I had an uncle who reinforced the, the, the idea with my mom that, that, you know, Neil certainly seems talented. And, and I, I, I literally walked into my mom and dad's bedroom one day, late one Sunday morning, and they were just, you know, whatever they were doing. And, and I said, um, okay, so I'll pick up Sunday Times, you know, the New York, the Sunday New York Times, sure. is, you have to do it. I'll pick up the locks and bagels. I'm not going to go to college. I'll get the dry cleaning. And, you know, I tried to, <laughs> to slip a knuckleball by them. And, um, and, um, they were not thrilled, but because I was already on the path, they were okay with it. I mean, to, to placate my mom and dad, I, I agreed to take two courses at the School of Visual Arts in, in Manhattan for a semester. And I think I went to one class once each. And I realized that I was overqualified and I never went back. And so I, I don't have any formal uh, photographic teaching. I've never been to a photography class per se. And, uh, and my mom and dad, as I said, my dad was in show business. So they were fairly liberal when it came to that stuff. And a year and a, a year, and three months later, I was on a plane, October 15th, 1971. I moved to LA. Because and that's another LA moment. I, that's, was, okay. So yeah. I'm counting now the decision to not go to college. That's a big moment, and certainly the move to L.A. is a is a game changer for right. you too, right? Right. I had gone on a on a on this in the summer of '71. I was invited to go on a press junket uh, that the PR company or the record company was having for, uh, for Three Dog Night for the band Three Dog Night, and they uh, Three Dog Night was playing the Cotton Bowl uh, in Dallas, and twenty five press people were flown from New York and 25 press people were flown from LA. Um, and, uh, uh, so, and I was one of the people flown from New York. Um, and I, I, because the press people were friends of mine from the, from the people I knew in the business, they agreed to fly me from New York to Dallas in the days where you could switch your tickets around, right. You know, doing what you wanted. Then I, I took the return and made it Dallas to LA and I was there for the summer. I met a girl, you know, boom, 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 went back to New York and, and, and then told my mom and dad, I said, I want to move to LA and, and LA was the epicenter of everything that was, that the music business was about. And those, those, it was Disneyland. It was fantasy land, really. Um, but, but, uh, I just, for the month that I was he here in LA, before I moved here, 
I started meeting a lot of people, and I just knew that this was the thing to do. So on October 15th, 1971, I kissed my mom and dad goodbye, and I, I remember walking down the hallway of our apartment building to, to the to the elevator, there was a cab waiting to take me to JFK, and I turned around and looked at my mom and dad and and got in the elevator, got in a cab, and flew to L.A. Um, and there you go. And, and L.A. was incredible at that time. Um, I was convinced that all the women in L.A. would look like the two women on the, on the cover of uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> if only. <laughs> It's a good spot for a break, so I'm going to cut away for one minute. My name is Chris Epting. This is The Moment. My special guest today is Neil Preston. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. And thank you for joining me here on The Moment. I am Chris Epting, about to get into part two here of my conversation with famed rock and roll photographer Neil Preston. In this segment, there are a couple of really key moments in his life that he breaks down, one of which is becoming Led Zeppelin's private photographer for a number of years in the 70s, which he was the only guy that ever got to do that. And he's also going to talk about his relationship with Cameron Crowe. They were best buddies and still are best buddies. And so he did a lot of work with Cameron on his films and things too. So Neil Preston is a very, uh, very diverse uh, kind of photographer. It's not just about music. That's how many of us know him as music fans, but uh, it was a pleasure talking to him, so why don't we pick it up again, my conversation on the moment here with Neil Preston. This right, is, the this two is women different... on the cover of the, right. This right. is LA, of like the... you say, it's a fantasy land, it, it's the... Uh, the epicenter of all that is uh, the record business in, in, in the early 70s, and, and, I, I, and they did all look like the girls on the cover of the Burritos record. Of course, I found out a lot later in life that those girls were two hookers that Graham Parsons had hired for the photo shoot, but you know, which is, which is another comment in and of itself. Um, but, uh, it was, you know, that was, that was the turning point from, from, from my career because I was all of a sudden in LA, uh, I, my girlfriend at the time was in PR and she hooked me up with, with a guy who became my business partner, a shooting partner for the next, six years or so, Andy Kent. And Andy had was a photographer in LA who had been a staff photographer for the LA free press, which was kind of our version here of the village voice. Right. Um, and Andy shot a lot of rock and roll and Andy, 
it was a good match because Andrew, Andy was very, it was good photographer, but very mellow and I'm very type a and, and, um, you know, we, we ended up negotiating a little retainer deal with Atlantic records from 72 to 74, um, which, you know, we got paid a little money per month and one of us had to make sure that we're in town at all times because they had a, you know, record companies did a lot of press parties, sure. gold record uh, presentations, and a lot of it was that, but a lot of it was shooting concerts and other stuff. And and um, I started going out on the road a lot. Uh, I Cameron, I met Cameron, who is, has became my close friend and has been my best friend on this earth since he was 15 years old. Uh, Would you and Crow. Cameron Crow do stories together back then, Neil? Oh, all the time, yeah. That had to be Yeah, fun. we went on. In fact, we went on. The, I was when Cameron went on the road with the Almonds, the mm-hmm. Almond Brothers, in '73. I was the Rolling Stone photographer, and uh, the, the, that tour is what Almost Famous is about. Right. Um, the guy that the kid in the movie chases around for the key interview in the movie, his name is Russell Hammond, but in real life, his name was Greg Almond. Wow. And um, and the girl that. I was, I was the Rolling Stone photographer. We used to share a room because Rolling Stone wasn't going to pay for two rooms. And um, uh, everything in that movie happened. And everything in that movie that happened, I was there for. Luckily, Cameron didn't write me in as a character in the movie. The real girl who got traded for the case of beer was a girl, I'm not going to say her name, but it was a groupie I used to off the record fraternize with sure. on the record a movie I used to know mm-hmm. um, uh, in San Diego and um, uh, and it, it was just like the movie I mean I would fly down and, my, and the groupie girl would pick me up at the airport and take me to the sports arena and Cameron's mom would drive to the sports arena just like she did in the, with the kid in the movie Wow! and um you know, uh, like I said, the girl got traded for beer in real life was, was that groupie girl. And uh, the, the depiction of the riot house, everything was stuff that really, really happened. And I, I actually shot all the stills on the movie. Um, Cameron had just had a very big hit with Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. um, a huge hit. And when Almost Famous uh, happened, we spoke and he said, you know, and off the record, off in Tom's trailer with Tom Cruise, and he said, but this is our story, as you know, and if, if you know, if you wanted to be the still guy in this movie, you know, we'll get, we'll get you into the union because he had to be in the union. His only reservation was he knew that I was kind of a, a type A loose cannon and, and wasn't sure that I'd fit in properly with a crew uh-huh. or, and, and, or enjoy myself because I do travel a lot and was traveling a lot. And I mean, he knew I could, I could cut the mustard on the gig. That's no problem. But I said, let's do it. And he wrote a very passionate uh, letter to, to the local 600, which is the cinematographers guild, which all the still photographers have to join. And uh, turned out the letter landed on on a girl's desk who was the number two person at the union who was a rock and roll photographer and she was married to a PR guy from Island Records was an old friend of ours her name was Kim Gottlieb and and uh, you know I was in and so Another almost moment. famous 
I mean, I had a, I had to prove that I had been on film sets over a hundred days, right? Which was not a problem because I mean, I probably worked on a hundred fifty music videos, um, and uh, yeah, and that was uh, that was another one, and and so so I said yes, and all of a sudden I was I'm the soap photographer for Almost Famous, and within three hours on set, Cameron said, "Oh man, are you gonna kill at this job?" and and we did, and and I've been doing all his. I mean, he, he is my closest friend in the world, and wow. and that you know I did. Every, I worked on every one of his movies since then, and will continue to because we are a team, and um, you know we have that silent communication thing that goes on where you can just look at somebody, sure. and 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 you know what they're thinking and. And you, you know, I mean, you saw the movie, I assume. Of course. Okay. Well, several times. Cameron and I were the Cameron and I were the only people on that set that actually had known Lester Bangs, right? Wow. So it was, you know, when Philip Seymour Hoffman had his scenes in Andy, and and it was it was amazing because he was channeling Lester, and he had never met Lester, and. I guess he had seen a little bit of footage that Cameron had found of Lester, but I'm telling you that that guy channeled Lester Bangs, and it was surreal. It was as if Rod Serling was on set with us, <laughs> and it was the Twilight Zone. So, yeah, how did your relationship with Zeppelin become as solidified? How did that begin to crystallize? It's another special part of your career. Um, right. Well, access right. you got I that nobody tell, else got. Go ahead. Well, uh, I had. Interestingly enough, one of the people I had met in the business before I even moved to L.A. was a guy named Danny Goldberg. And Danny was a rock writer. And Danny used to write for a magazine called Hullabaloo Magazine, mm -hmm. which later became Circus Magazine. Right. So I knew Danny. And then Danny all of a sudden got into PR, and he was doing PR for Zeppelin. I started being around Zeppelin because of my Atlantic Records retainer deal, a little bit here and a little bit there, 70, uh, 72. And then uh, during the 73 tour, I, Atlantic had me, had me photograph a bunch of shows, you know, Keesler Stadiums, Long Beach, San Diego, et cetera, et cetera, for them. And, uh, and so I, I met Peter Grant. Um, and, you know, and, and Kizar was where I shot the famous photo of Robert holding the white dove. Right. And, you know, and they, they, they liked me and, um, but Danny, Danny was the guy, he was the PR guy. And at the point where, um, so I was around Zeppelin a little bit here and there, no problem. And I know that they were a very cloistered bunch and didn't really the, we'll say take kindly to outsiders, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They were just very wary of the press. And, um, you know, the famous story about Rolling Stone dissing their first two albums. Jimmy, in particular, had a fucking bone to pick with, with Jan Winter and Rolling Stone. And that's been well documented. Sure. Um, at, at the, so I had to shoot the launch party at uh, the Bel Air Hotel, a uh, launch party for Swan Song. They did a launch party in New York and one in L.A. And, and at that party, I said to Danny, 
who, you know, like I said, had been an old friend of mine. I said, look, I know you guys are going on the road soon. And if by some chance you want a tour photographer, allow me to throw my hat in the ring. And a month later, I get a phone call from Danny. You still interested? And, in, you know, if you're still interested, you know, we want, we want you. And I said, well, of course. And I hung up the phone and I said, what the hell just happened? <laughs> And I was became Led Zeppelin's official tour photographer in America, and I'm a bit proud to say that they've never they never took a photographer on. Well, I'm not saying someone didn't shoot a day, night here or two nights there, but sure. I'm the only guy ever hired by Led Zeppelin to be their tour photographer, and that was uh, Danny with with certainly with Peter Grant's okay and Jimmy's, but you know Peter Peter had. The, the bucks always stopped with Peter. And, uh, and I asked Danny, Danny told me years later, like how that happened. Apparently, uh, look, Zeppelin was the biggest fan in the world, bar none. Okay. And as I like to say, any, any gig in 1975 that the stones played or Zeppelin played, Zeppelin would wipe their ass with the stones. Sorry, Mick. Sorry, Keith. But that's the God honest truth. I saw you both. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, but the stones were getting all the press because they were press savvy and press friendly. And all the celebrities were coming backstage to meet, you know, sure. all the movie stars to meet the, the band and, Je- and Zeppelin was going, well, what about us? You know, they, they were the biggest band in the land and they had the swagger and then, you know, they owned, they owned the stones and they knew it, but they weren't, but no one else knew it kind of. So they made the decision to be a little more press friendly. And because of that, they were going to need a photographer around who could shoot some current pictures that they could. Okay. That could be given out to the press as part of the whole package of we're being more press friendly. And Danny told me there was no question for as he was concerned that I was the guy because beside the fact that you had to be able to cut the mustard, you know, photographically, he said, you know, you were close to their age and you were one of us. And, and he said, besides all the other rock and roll photographers around were insane, (laughs) which is what he said. And so that's how I got the gig, you know, and I started working as their tour photographer 75 and then 77 and then Nebworth in 79. And I had been hired to do 1980 as well. But of course that tour never happened because of Bonzo passing away. And that's how it happened. Neil, when you're on the road with them over as, as time goes by, how does the relationship develop? Is there a wall up? Do they gradually let you in? How do you feel? um, What's the connection like when you and the band on the road? Okay. Well, it's, not only with Zeppelin, but pretty much any band, um, it's the same. Now, as, as I became a, a, well, let me back up. It never hurts to have the names lead and Zeppelin on your resume. It will never hurt you. And, (laughs) and, you know, because of that, yes, I became a little more of a known quantity, but, but really whether it's the almonds or Zeppelin or Fleetwood Mac, or whomever, The Who, Queen. I, mean, I spend more time with Queen than anybody. Um, a lot of it is common sense, okay? 
it's common fucking sense. You you get a feel very early on for what where I mean I mean I was allowed to go anywhere I wanted with Led Zeppelin. But you're not gonna walk in in the bathroom when Jimmy's on the on the toilet or it's you know, sure. it's a fast analogy, but you know what I'm saying. Of course. And you're you know, as far as the yeah, there are groupies around and, you know, contraband and stuff. But, you know, common sense will tell you what to shoot and whatnot. 99.9% of it is common sense. Nobody have to, had to tell me, don't shoot this, don't shoot that. Zeppelin was a cloistered bunch. And if you were on their side, Peter would kill for you. And if you were not on their side, look out because Peter might kill you. Um, uh, so... So you, you, you develop a sixth sense and, uh, if, if you've got any brain, if you've got a half a brain, you figure out, you don't walk into the who's dressing room right after a show because you could get killed. You could have a drumstick thrown at you, a guitar or worse. And you wait till you're invited in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but people like Zeppelin and certainly Queen, you know, Brian became a very close friend. Roger as well. Mm-hmm. Brian May is the only rock star that ever came to my mom and dad's house. And that's a whole nother story. Um, but I didn't have to have anybody tell me what, where you can go, where you can't go. Um, as, a, as a photojournalist at heart, the idea is to become invisible. Okay? You're, you want to be a fly on the wall. You want to be invisible. The irony of it is that to become invisible, you have to be completely visible at all times because what happens is they get used to seeing you around. They're used to seeing you in the dressing room. You don't make waves. You don't draw attention to yourself. You're just you. And you don't act like you're the fifth member of the band. Uh, you, you, and when you're totally visible like that, it's no different when you walk in into a dressing room. It's no different than the than the guitar roadie walking in, tuning the guitars, sure. or the, the tour accountant walking in and talking to the manager. Well, you're whatever. part of the process. You're, you're part of the you, full you process. You become part of the fabric of the tour, and as such, you're invisible. And that that, as it turned out, that's how I worked anyway, and that has always worked to my advantage. Plus, you know, being a fan of the band and everything doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, but that's more when you're shooting that that helps. But so that that's the best answer uh, I can give you on that. There's also I saw at the display at Nam, you know, that that uh, passport shot of Jimmy Page had an interesting story behind it. it was definitely yeah. a moment. Yeah. Well, that was just one night when um, uh. We were we're on the plane flying from you know city A to city B. I can't tell you. And one of the guys at Swan Song, uh, you know, band's management, came over to me and said, uh, "Jimmy needs a, a a passport photo done because he and Robert are going to Egypt after this leg of the tour, and um, we got to have a visa picture for Jimmy at the Egyptian consulate." And I immediately doesn't matter what assignment I'm, I'm given. If it's a magazine assignment to shoot the guy at the pizza place I'm looking at ne- next to where I'm right now or, or Zeppelin or whatever, I go into work mode. What's my deadline? I come from a world of deadline journalism. Mm-hmm. What's my deadline? And P.S. 
Don't give me a soft deadline if you're a magazine editor. Don't tell me, well, we need everything here by Friday when you're not going, you're not putting the book to bed till right. a week from Friday. <laughs> I need a hard <laughs> deadline because that's how I compart compartment compartmentalize. Sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm one of these, you know, my life, and um, that's what I need to know. So I'm. I said, what's my deadline? And uh, and I'm told, you know, 2 p.m. tomorrow. Okay, now I got my deadline. So I pulled Jimmy into the back of the plane where there's there's a, a, a somewhat of a white plane wall area, <laughs> and I, sh I shot three frames, and um, and I I said, Jimmy, you know, this is gonna have to. I have to do this first thing in the morning. Is okay if I pick the picture? I mean, it's just a visa picture. It's not. Right magazine cover and and uh i i was up all night and then went to the lab at 6 a.m normally i would just drop stuff in the night drop at the lab and rush everything and i have it back at 12 but we had a prints made and i didn't want to take a chance on blowing this so up all night and of course I've never been up all night on the road with a band like Led Zeppelin or anyone else. <laughs> wink, wink, wink. But, but this was work, you know. And um, uh, and I went to the lab and I looked at a wet proof and picked out the frame. And it had to be the frame with enough white around it and everything because it's an official picture. I mean, sure, you can't just give any passport office for any country or any consulate the wrong. Uh, you know, it's got to fit their dimensions and everything. And I had the picture, the prints made, and I made deadline by like 45 minutes, and so was very proud of myself on that. And then never thought about it again. Forty some odd years later, thirty some odd years, uh, whatever it was, that photo becomes the cover of Jimmy's um, auto photo autobiography. <laughs> so, you know, you there know. you go. You never know. You never know. But that's the story behind that one. It was a visa picture for the Egyptian consulate. The, but Cameron's the, always told me that there's something about that picture in the eyes or, you know, whatever. But it is kind of a haunting picture. There's I totally no agree. It definitely is. And he clearly he, he has a relationship with you and your lens that's that's different, you know, and and yeah, reveals yeah. something else to you. Apparently, you know. Neil, I could talk to you for a long time. We're about out of time, but I want to mention Wallet Nam. Um, there was a real charitable aspect of what you were doing there. The proceeds of sale of your books and prints yeah. on site went to support the Nam Foundation, a behind-the-scenes charity that offers grants right. to seriously ill or injured entertainment industry, industry technology professionals. That was great of you, right. man. It's nice that you can find, you well, know, do do, really, do that as well. That's that's very special. Well, I really believe in what behind-the-scenes does, and no one. If I have a second to talk, uh, sure, no one in the world, no one on this planet works harder than a roadie on a rock tour. And I, I like, I use the word roadie because that's the word I've lived with for my whole life. I know there's drum technician, guitar technician. Okay. You want to call me a camera technician, whatever, but you know, they're roadies. I, when I'm touring, I'm on the crew. I'm not a guy that has to hang out with Freddie Mercury or, Pete or, or, you know, anybody, I don't care what the band is. I, I always relate to the crew and, um, these guys work really hard when you go to a show at the forum or the garden or the O2 in London or, or the Tokyo dome. 
I don't care where it is. You people think that that show just lands from outer space and it's ready to go. No, right. there are a lot of people that work their asses off for not that much money, hardly any sleep. It's very difficult, you know, and, and they have to do it right every time. And these, a lot of these guys didn't, didn't have health insurance and uh, things happen on the road and, and, there are mental problems that you develop because you're never home. And I used to watch guys. I remember there were, there were guys who were on the amnesty tour in 88. I was a tour photographer with Bruce and Sting and Peter Gabriel. And there were guys who were spent, they spent two, two months going around the world and that was a grueling tour. Then they had one day off and then they started with, you know, whomever it was Billy Joel for a year. And then they, then they, be for a year or whatever it was, and then they'd have a a day off and then they'd start with Bruce for eight months or, you know, there are guys that never, ever, ever stopped. And those guys have run into problems without insurance and far be it for me to deny them. That's the least I can do. Those guys hold the keys to the kingdom to, to me. I can't do my job without the crew being on my side. And, if you if you love going to rock shows, the crew better be first and foremost in your mind as someone to say thank you to because it doesn't happen without them. So it's a really good cause, one my dad would have appreciated because my dad was a showbiz guy. Sure. And uh, there you go. Well, thanks for what you do for behind the scenes and, and for what you do for us as rock and roll fans, Neil. Uh, again, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for sharing some of your most important moments over the years. You're very welcome anytime. And there you go, the great Neil Preston. You know, it's funny. If you grew up in the 70s, uh, there were just certain photographers' names you got used to seeing. Um, One of them was obviously Neil Preston. You would see Bob Gruen. You would see Ken Regan, Brad Elcherman. They they were such a big part of music for us in kind of a pre-MTV world. It was the photographers that gave us... You know, those images that we could hang on to and sort of relive after we saw a show or something like that. So that really was really was a nice time uh, talking to Neil. And the NAMM show, you know, some of my best moments, since we talk about moments here on a show of the moment, I remember sitting there once in the Gibson booth when Brian Wilson wandered in with like two or three other guys, sat down not five feet from me and started playing God Only Knows. That's the special thing about NAMM. You never know what's going to happen, but it's a really fun show and I was glad it I could go down there this year and uh, collect some material for the show here. Speaking of which, I'll be back next week with another special guest, a musician friend of mine who I'm going to surprise you with. You can check out all of these shows. So far, I've spoken with Todd Rundgren and John Oates and Jane Levy, uh, Michael Anthony. They're all available here on voiceamerica.com, or you can find them on Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher, anywhere you find recorded uh, archived audio, you can find the moment. So I want to thank you very much for joining me again this week. It's always a, a pleasure and a privilege to uh, get to the bottom of these moments with some really interesting guests, and uh, I appreciate it. And spread the word, tell a friend, and I will see you back here next week on The Moment. Thanks again. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. 